This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 1, an overview of the history of the Pentateuch, better known as the first five books of the Old Testament. Last week, I wrapped up Chapter 1 with the history of the Bible versions I will be using for this podcast. I also provided an analogy of why I used three different versions. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I kick off Chapter 2 and begin in the beginning. So let's get started. The intent of this episode is to provide a summary, probably better termed a general outline, of the first five books and the stories embedded in them. I will also provide a few specifics on the societies that impacted the peoples found in these books, and how all of them intermeshed in the history of that part of the world. Finally, I'll dive a little into the theory surrounding the writing of these books. In the episodes to follow, a more detailed dive will be conducted. And a program note. As I currently envision this chapter, the episodes focused on Genesis will probably take some time. After all, this is the first foray into that particular geographic region of the world, as well as into the societies of that era. This region will be the focus of pretty much the entire Old Testament, so it's important to lay the groundwork for that area early on. So, accordingly, there will be episodes concerning the societies outside of Judaism that impacted it, as well as a great deal of information concerning physical geographies. And unless you are the rare exception of a well-versed student of that era, I can guarantee you will learn something. First, there is Genesis. Before exploring the history found in the book, I'll delve into the history of the book itself. I'll present the competing theories on who wrote it and when it was written. This will be done from a traditional perspective, as well as from a linguistic and archaeological perspective. My goal is not to present a definite answer, as such a thing does not exist. I will simply present a summary of what researchers and religious adherents believe to be true. Genesis begins with what has been called the primeval history, found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the story of the world's beginnings and the descent from Adam. This is followed by the story of the three patriarchs, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the story of Joseph found in Genesis chapters 12 through 50. Concurrently, the story of the four matriarchs, specifically Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, is told. God gives to the patriarchs a promise of the land of Canaan, but at the conclusion of Genesis, the sons of Jacob end up leaving Canaan for Egypt due to a regional famine, and following a rumor that there was a grain storage and distribution facility in Egypt. Genesis proves problematic in tying these stories to independently verifiable history, so I will explore other creation stories found in other cultures for the similarities and differences to the one, or some say two, found in Genesis. After that, the history of the region becomes clearer. Well, clearer when you take into account sources outside of what is found in the book. I'll get into the history of the Akkadians, the Elamites, the Sumerians, and the other people that surround the area of Mesopotamia. And as the Bible stories transition from southwestern Asia to North Africa, I'll explore the history of the Egyptians, both before and during that period, presented in Genesis and Exodus. In doing so, there will be some overlap with the history of the book of Exodus. Overall, it must be remembered that the basic narrative in Genesis expresses the central theme. God creates the world, including the first man and woman, and appoints man as his regent. But man proves disobedient, and God destroys his world through the flood. The new post-flood world is equally corrupt, 
but God does not destroy it, instead calling one man, Abraham, to be the seed of its salvation. At God's command, Abraham descends from his home into the land of Canaan, given to him by God, where he dwells as a sojourner, as does his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and ultimately aided by his son Joseph, the children of Israel descend into Egypt, seventy people in all, with their households, and God promises them a future of greatness. Genesis ends with Israel in Egypt, ready for the coming of Moses and the Exodus. The narrative is punctuated by a series of covenants with God, successively narrowing in scope from all mankind as was seen in the covenant with Noah, to a special relationship with one people alone, as was seen with Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Christianity has traditionally interpreted Genesis as being the prefiguration of certain cardinal Christian beliefs, specifically the need for salvation, which is the hope or assurance of all Christians, and the redemptive act of Christ on the cross as the fulfillment of covenant promises as the Son of God. Next, there is Exodus. Exodus begins with the story of God's revelation to his people Israel through Moses, who leads them out of Egypt, found in Exodus chapters 1-18, through 18, to Mount Sinai. There the people accept the covenant with God, agreeing to be his people in return for agreeing to abide by his law. In the Jewish tradition, Moses receives the Torah from God, and teaches his laws and covenant to the people of Israel, found in Exodus 19-24. through 24. The book also talks about the first violation of the covenant when the golden calf was constructed in Exodus 32 through 34. Exodus includes the instructions on building the tabernacle and concludes with its actual construction. The history punctuated by this book will continue with the Egyptians and a look into the geography of the region. Next, there is Leviticus. Leviticus begins with instructions to the Israelites on how to use the tabernacle, which they had just built, found in Leviticus chapters 1 through 10. This is followed by rules of what is clean and unclean, found in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, which includes the laws of slaughter and animals permissible to eat. The Day of Atonement is introduced, found in Leviticus chapter 16, and various moral and ritual laws, sometimes referred to as a holiness code, is found in Leviticus chapters 17 through 26. Leviticus 26 provides a detailed list of the rewards for following God's commandments, as well as a detailed list of punishments for not following them. While the book is essentially a list of rules, it does not provide much direction into the societies outside of those described in the book. Therefore, the plan I have today, which of course is subject to change, is to look into these rules and explore their influence on societies then and now. Then there is numbers, and I did purposely phrase it that way, just so it would sound grammatically incorrect. The book of Numbers tells how Israel consolidated itself as a community at Sinai in Numbers chapters 1 through 9, set out from Sinai, moving towards Canaan, and sending spies out into that land in Numbers chapters 10 through 13. Due to their lack of faith at various points, but especially at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14, the Israelites were condemned to wander for 40 years in the desert instead of immediately entering the promised land. Moses sins and is told he would not live to enter the promised land in Numbers 20. At the end of Numbers, the people of Israel move from Kadesh to the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho, ready to enter the promised land. Now that the people are approaching the land, they will eventually settle. Sorry for the spoiler. I will have more societies to dive into. 
and I'll get into the geography of that region, as it was then, and approximately where that lines up today. The last book of the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is structured as a series of speeches by Moses on the plains of Moab opposite Jericho. It is also referred to as the Manesh Torah in Hebrew. And the essential message of the book is a rebuke of the children of Israel to not worship idolatry, to not follow the ways of Canaan, and to cling to God. In Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26, Moses proclaims the law, creating what some have called the Deuteronomic Code. In summary, there were laws concerning religious observances, officials, civil law, and criminal law. I'll get into more detail when I do a deep dive into the book in a later episode. At the end of the book, Moses is allowed to see the promised land from a mountain, and then he dies. The text emphasized that no one knows where Moses was finally buried. Knowing that he was nearing the end of his life, Moses had appointed Joshua his successor, bequeathing to him the mantle of leadership. Soon afterwards, Israel begins the conquest of Canaan. With this book, as with Leviticus, I will explore other codes from nearby regions that are the same era and potentially earlier. These will include the Code of Hammurabi and possibly others. So who wrote the Pentateuch? Jewish tradition is that the Pentateuch was written by Moses, with the exception of the last eight verses of Deuteronomy being written by Joshua describing Moses' death and burial. Alternatively, Rashi, an 11th century rabbi and scholar, believed that, and this is a quote, God spoke them, and Moses wrote them with his tears. Moses as the author is the Jewish tradition, later adopted by Christian scholars, and that the Torah was dictated to Moses by God. Today, a wide majority of biblical scholars accept the theory that the Pentateuch does not have a single author, and that its composition took place over centuries. What is called the Documentary Hypothesis suggests that the book was derived from originally independent, parallel, and complete narratives, which were subsequently combined into the current form by a series of editors. The number of these editors is usually set at four, but the number is not an essential part of the hypothesis. The hypothesis was first proposed in the 18th and 19th centuries, stemming from attempts to reconcile the inconsistencies in the biblical text. Biblical scholars, using what is called source criticism, eventually arrived at the theory that the books were composed of selections woven together from separate, at times inconsistent sources, each originally a complete and independent document. By the end of the 19th century, it was generally agreed that there were four primary sources, combined into their final form by a series of editors. Julius Wellhausen, a German biblical scholar of the 19th and 20th centuries, proposed the order of the sources chronologically, sometimes abbreviated by the letters J-E-D-P. The theory was based on an idea, first proposed by Jean Ostruck in the 18th century. He also placed them in the context of the evolving religious history of Israel, which he viewed as having an ever-increasing priestly power. He is said to have thought that writing did not develop until about 1000 BC, so it would have been impossible for the books to have been written before that time. In a later episode, I'll touch on when it is believed that writing actually did develop. Wellhausen assumed that sagas, epics, poetry, etc., which were later used to compile the Bible, were passed down orally for millennia. Wellhausen's proposal was that there was a Yahweh's source, written around 950 BC in the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically at the court of Solomon. 
More recent research suggests that it was written by a Jewish priest just before or during the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC. This source was the J in JEDP. Next, there was the Eloist source, written around 850 BC in the northern kingdom of Israel. This was the E in JEDP. After that, there was a Deuteronomist source, written around 600 BC in Jerusalem, during a period of religious reform. This was the D, of course. And last, there was a priestly source, written around 500 BC, and thought to have been written by Ezra. More recently, proponents of the JEDP hypothesis believe that the final edition was made late in what is known as the Exilic period, or soon after. The Exilic period essentially corresponds with the Babylonian exile in the 7th century BC. Scholars use a few repeated and duplicate stories to identify the separate sources. In Genesis, these include three different accounts of a patriarch claiming that his wife was his sister, the two creation stories, and the two versions of Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael into the desert. In the last 40 years, biblical scholars have proposed an additional theory, specifically that the Eloist source is now widely regarded as no more than a variation of the Yahwehist source, while the priestly source is increasingly seen not as a document, but as a body of revisions and expansions to the Yahwehist source. In writing the patriarchal history, the Yahwehist drew from four separate segments of traditional stories about Abraham, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph, combining them with genealogies, itineraries, and the motif of God's promise to create a unified whole. Similarly, some scholars believe that when the Yahwehist composed the early history, he drew on Greek and Mesopotamian sources, editing and adding them to create a unified work that fit his theological agenda. The Yahwehist work was then revised and expanded into the final edition by the authors of the priestly source. But, as I'll show you when I cover the creation story, the story in Genesis is not only similar to Greek and Mesopotamian stories, but it is also vaguely similar to Native American creation stories. And it is absolutely certain that no matter when the priestly source documented the creation story, he did not have access to Native American renderings. Interestingly, the Deuteronomist is seen by many scholars as the source of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah. While the JEDP hypothesis has been increasingly challenged by other models in the last part of the 20th century, its terminology and insights continue to provide the framework for modern theories on the origins of the Pentateuch. Keep in mind that the common belief is not that the four sources invented the material from whole cloth, but that they combined many different sources into one. And this is a very key point. In many ways, it isn't terribly different from how the modern English translations of the New Testament were constructed. In contrast, the so-called tablet theory suggests that portions of Genesis were originally written on clay tablets by men who personally experienced the events described. The tablets were later compiled by Moses. Since the original writers were said to be eyewitnesses, their accounts should be historically accurate. I'll describe this theory in greater detail in a future episode. There have been some contemporary scholars that counter the four-source theory with their own. One such scholar is David Hoffman, a German rabbi, who in his commentary on Leviticus defended Mosaic authorship against the work of Wellhausen and others. In his book, and it has a German title that I will not even attempt to pronounce, 
he pointed out several difficulties in the Wellhausen hypothesis, primarily in his theory that the priestly code, and hence the Jewish conception of monotheism, was of late post-exilic redaction. Hoffman's approach to biblical investigation is still being studied. Menachem Mendel Kasher, a Polish rabbi who later relocated to Jerusalem, shows that certain traditions of the oral Torah, which show Moses quoting Genesis prior to the Epiphany at Sinai, based on a number of Bible verses and rabbinic statements, he suggests that Moses made use of documents authored by the patriarchs when editing Genesis. In his book, Revelation Restored, Rabbi David Weiss Halvany developed a theory whose Hebrew name I will not try to pronounce, but it literally translates to Israel has sinned. In quoting him, According to the biblical account itself, the people of Israel forsook the Torah in the dramatic episode of the Golden Calf, only 40 days after the revelation at Sinai. From that point on, until the time of Ezra, the scriptures revealed that the people of Israel were steeped in idolatry and negligent of the Mosaic law. He goes on to state that in the period of neglect after the conquest of Canaan, when the originally monotheistic Israelites adopted pagan practices from their neighbors, the Torah of Moses became blemished. Bear in mind that what Christians refer to as the Pentateuch, Jewish people use the word Torah. They are largely the same. Now this is where his theory gets more interesting. According to Heavenly, the idolatry and paganism continued until the time of Ezra, about 450 BC, when at last, upon their return from Babylon, the people accepted the Torah. It was at that time that the previously rejected and therefore blemished text of the Torah was recompiled and edited by Ezra and his compatriots. Heavenly claims that his theory is supported by the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and supports this theory with various Torah sources which indicate that Ezra played a role in editing the Torah. He further states that while the text of the Torah was corrupted, oral tradition preserved intact many of the laws, which is why the oral law appears to contradict the biblical text in certain details. His view was condemned in a declaration cited by many prominent Orthodox rabbis, as it was seen as being in direct contradiction to the 13 principles of faith which are universally accepted by all Orthodox Jews. The eighth principle states that, quoting, the Torah that we have today is the one that was dictated to Moses by God, end quote. And now you know that religious infighting is not limited to Christians. There are four major sources that document the book of Genesis, specifically the Masoretic text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, and fragments of Genesis found at Qumran, Qumran group provides the oldest manuscripts, but it includes only a small portion of the book. In general, the Masoretic text is well preserved, but there are many individual instances where the other versions preserved an enhanced reading. As for why the book was created, a theory which has gained considerable interest, although it is very, very controversial, is that it is of Persian imperial authorization. This proposes that the Persians, after their conquest of Babylon in 538 BC, agreed to grant Jerusalem a large measure of local autonomy within the empire. But they required the local authorities to produce a single law code accepted by the entire community. The two powerful groups making up the community, the priestly families who controlled the temple and who traced their origins to Moses, and the wilderness wanderings, and the major landowning families who made up the elders and who traced their origins to Abraham, 
who had given these families the land, were in conflict over many issues and each had their own history of origins. But the Persian promise of greatly increased local autonomy for all provided a powerful incentive to cooperate in producing a single text. I'm guessing the controversy around this theory needs no explanation. In 1978, David Kleins, professor of biblical studies at the University of Sheffield, published his book, The Theme of the Pentateuch. It was influential because he was one of the first to take up the question of the theme of the entire five books. Klein's conclusion was that the overall theme is the partial fulfillment, which of course implies also the partial non-fulfillment, of the promise to or blessing of the patriarchs. In calling the fulfillment partial, Klein's was drawing attention to the fact that at the end of Deuteronomy, the people are still outside of Canaan. To this basic plot, commonly thought to be from the Yahwehist, the priestly source has added a series of covenants dividing history into stages, each with its own distinctive sign. The first covenant is between God and all living creatures, and is marked by the sign of the rainbow. The second is with the descendants of Abraham, including the so-called Ishmaelites and others, as well as Israelites, and its sign is circumcision. And the last, which doesn't appear until the book of Exodus, is with Israel alone, and its sign is the Sabbath. Each covenant is mediated by a great leader, such as Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and at each stage God progressively reveals himself by his name, Elohim with Noah, El Shaddai with Abraham, and Yahweh with Moses. In the books of Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus and the Gospel writers said that the law, meaning various parts of the Pentateuch, were given by Moses, and that the uniform tradition of the Jewish scribes and early Christian fathers and the conclusion of many conservative scholars to the present day, is that Genesis was written by Moses. But this does not exclude the possibility that Moses had access to patriarchal records, preserved by being written on clay tablets and handed down from father to son, via the line of Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and so on, or from others who witnessed the events or even that the events were described by someone who took on a role similar to that of Luke in the New Testament. If this is so, the most likely explanation of them is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in their own lifetimes, and Moses selected and compiled these, along with his own comments, into the book we now know as Genesis. On a different note, it is commonly believed that enough archaeological confirmation has been found so that many historians now consider the Old Testament, at least the part after about the 11th chapter of Genesis, to be historically correct. So you may be wondering which theory I subscribe to. Well, that really doesn't matter, and quite honestly, I've come to accept that I will never know which is historically correct. I've also come to accept that none of these theories impact my beliefs about God. But they are all very interesting. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll look more deeply into the history of the book of Genesis. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.